Libby, are you ready for a most non-heinous episode? A very bodacious episode, absolutely. The most triumphant. I've even figured out a way to do this episode without having to do any actual work. Are you ready for this? What do you got? All we have to do is we have to remind ourselves in the future to do the episode early. That way, us in the present don't have to do the episode now. So you and I can just go and take a break for an hour and a half and go talk about something else. Go down to the mall, go to the Galleria, have a, have a slushie and a corn dog. How does that sound? Whoa. Hello, and welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. This is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans come together and have a rockin' good time talking about all of our favorite movie soundtracks. Hi, my name is Joseph Wade. I will be your host for this evening. Here with me tonight, as always, is my lovely and belligerent co-host, Libby Cudmore. Libby. This has been a most non-triumphant week. It really, really has. Wow. But I think after all this... We kind of need tonight's movie, so we're our our hearts are with uh, with our sisters and brothers and family out on the front lines, saying loud and clear that Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter, and honestly, if we had planned to do this, we would have probably picked a better episode, a better film to discuss, a more relevant film. But as it turned out, this was kind of a happy accident because honestly, if there's any message we need right now, it's the message. In tonight's film, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Most excellent. Most, most excellent. Uh, But before we get into that, uh, let's talk about the polls from our last episode. Libby, how did the polls shake out? We actually had two polls. It was too hard to pick just four songs from Homestar Runner. As it was, a lot of you commented that the episode was too short with only 10 songs. And we agree. Oh, yeah. So I... With our poll, first we went with, what member of Teen Girl Squad are you? And with 45.8% of the vote, most of you are, what's her face? (laughs) 37.5% of you are the ugly one. 12.5% of you are so-and-so. And and 4.2% of you are the cheerleader. (laughs) So. (laughs) I I don't know. I I love that y'all are being honest with with yourselves. Yeah. So, but we actually did put a second sort of more music related poll. And we asked, who is the best band in all of Strong Badia? And with 50% of the vote, Limousine. Of course. Took, uh, top place. Uh, with 33.3% of the vote, <laughs> The Cheat. The Cheat. The Cheat. <laughs> the Cheat. The Cheat. 16.7% of the vote, uh, which I think was probably just Strong Sad. Uh, voted for Sloshy. Don't call me and... strong, sad. <laughs> and Brain Creek got no votes. Uh, oh, well. And then, of course, we had one one uh, complaint. No tarantula. Forgot about tarantula. Honestly, so, kind of, yeah. We did. Our apologies. <laughs> oh, boy. So oh. what are we doing tonight? Tonight, we are discussing the 1989 uh, time travel comedy, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It's something that I've kind of lived with for the last 25, 30 years. Uh, but Libby, you kind of came to this one pretty fresh. What did, what did you think? I probably saw this in college. And it's such a delightful 
film, if you look at it from a critical lens, it's not that great. There's almost no tension. It's extremely episodic. But then you watch it, and you just feel good when you do. It's impossible to hate Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It's just such a delightful film. Absolutely, yeah. There's, there's really only like one sour note in the entire film, but the rest is just, it's light as a feather. It's so happy and so joyful and so stupid. And absurd. You just can't help but love it. Yeah. And of course, it stars Alex Winter as Bill S. Preston Esquire and dog star bassist Keanu Reeves <laughs> as Ted Theodore Logan. Yes. So making his second appearance on our podcast is Keanu. He's a national treasure. He is a national treasure, and we have to we have to keep him safe and protected at all costs. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is kind of an odd movie in the in the pantheon of like eighties teen comedies because it really doesn't fit into that mold at all. But then it really does in in certain other ways, you know. It's it's really if Back to the Future and Beavis and Butthead had a baby. Sort of, yeah. Because like, the it's like t- if Marty McFly was dumb, <laughs> I mean he's not the best. He's not the brightest bulb, but he's yeah, he's no Bill and Ted. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I should talk about uh, some stats real quick about this film. Yes. Let's go to billboarding Please. school. So first things first, I want to tell you that this film came out uh, February seventeenth, nineteen eighty nine, President's Day weekend, which seems important to this film. <laughs> Opened. Third at the box office with six and a half million dollars behind uh, Joe Dante's The Burbs at number one and Rain Man in number two, which was in its ninth week. This was like Ugh. Rain Man fever had swept the country. Uh, <laughs> think about that. And then the album, the album itself debuted on the Billboard charts April 8th, 1989. Uh, the number one album that week was Debbie Gibson's Electric Youth. Okay, that's extremely mm. 80s. Yep. Uh, the top soundtrack at number 16 was the soundtrack to Beaches. Well, you guys just wanted to cry in 1989, didn't you? Yeah. Just all sappy with your Rain Man and your beaches. The 80s were over and we were mourning, apparently. Yes. Very um, sad about that. So Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure debuted at 172, peaked at 170, and was gone in four weeks. And that's fair. Um, in looking over this soundtrack, as you'll see, it's sort of the Tubi of soundtracks. Yeah. It sounds like other soundtracks, but it's not quite. It's the third tier VHS of soundtracks. It's not bad. It's not Back to the Future or uh, Footloose or Top Gun. It's just a lot of bands that sound like better bands. Right, pretty much. If I had to retitle this album anything, I would call it... Now, that's what I call mildly inoffensive butt rock. Yes. That's actually a pretty good. Because that's pretty much the entire album. Mm -hmm. There's one or two exceptions, but for the most part, it's bands that are, like, trying to out Van Halen each other. (laughs) Like, that must have been the directive they gave to the people putting the album together. Like, we we can't afford Van Halen, but we want Van Halen. Much like Bill and Ted. not being able to afford Eddie... Yeah, Sorry. not being able to afford Eddie Van Halen was how George Carlin got cast as Rufus. Yes, yes. So tell me a little bit about sort of your, how you came to this film. Well, we, we'll talk more about um, Bogus Journey on a different episode, hopefully. But that's the one that I remember seeing first. I think I'd made my parents take me to see that, and they were not happy. I was three <laughs> or four at the time. And then later on, I found Excellent Adventure. And so I've always kind of had them both films rattling around in my head for whatever reason, I always kind of gravitated towards bogus journey just, I think because it's weirder. And mm-hmm. this one is, this one seems 
a little more set in sort of its 80s teen comedy kind of tropes. And that's mm-hmm. fine. I don't dislike any of that. But uh, Excellent Adventure just seems a little safer, I guess. And I don't know. I don't dislike the film, but uh, because it's it's a it's a great fun, and I still enjoy it to this day. But man, I just really want to talk about Bogus Journey. <laughs> well, well, we'll get through this somehow. We will. I don't remember when I saw it. I know I saw it late, but my sort of strongest memory about this film is I threw an '80s themed birthday party for my 21st birthday because that's the kind of shit I do. Yeah. My friend Liz Ellis showed up dressed as Ted. With the vest and the jacket tied around her waist. And it just always makes me happy to to think <laughs> about that. So this one's for you, Liz. That's adorable. <laughs> no Ted? Like or no, no Bill? Did she not no have Bill. the Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, she didn't have, she didn't have the Bill. So uh, too bad. It's a it's bogus. It's it, it is. is it's bogus. It's 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 non non heinous. So give us the plot. Okay. Briefly. So Bill and Ted are two high school students who are getting ready to flunk out of their uh, senior year history class. Uh, if they fail, if they completely flunk out, Ted is getting shipped off to military school in It Alaska. should be noted that Ted's dad is a cop, proving that all <sighs> cops are bastards. It's true. Not only is he a cop, but he's also a bastard. So this is a problem because Bill and Ted are, are fated to become uh, the greatest rock stars in human history, who will save humanity and bring peace to the world through their music. So the most important people in the world send Rufus, played by George Carlin, back in time with a magic phone booth to help Bill and Ted pass their history exam. And they use the phone booth to travel through history, picking up historical figures along the way to take back to San Dimas, California, so that they can put on a kick and rad presentation and get that A plus and save Ted from going to military school. And thus... Align the planets, align all people's hearts. They can communicate with pets, I think, is one of the things they can do in the future. From, and, yeah, from extraterrestrials to common household pets. Yes. And uh, Rufus welcomes us in by saying that it is the year 2688, and apparently everything is clean, and they have lots of water slides. The air is clean, the water is clean, even the dirt is clean. Bowling averages are way up. Many golf scores are way down. And we have more excellent water slides than any other planet we communicate with. It's great. Like, I want to live in that future. It sounds perfect. I know. It sounds much better than our present garbage fire. Oh, yeah. 2688 is a long way from 2020, that's for sure. Yeah, we need Wild Stallions. We need their music. Oh, and we're about to get Wild Stallions. The new movie is coming out soon, and I can't wait. (gasps) We desperately need Bill and Ted face the music. Yes, we do. So, Libby, uh, on our excellent adventure, where does the soundtrack take us? Like, where do we, how do we start with the soundtrack? We start with uh, Big Pigs, I Can't Break Away. Let's go to a clip. And this is what's played over the opening credits. Uh, Big Pig were an Australian band, sort of an Australian funk band. And this is a cover of Chuck Jackson's song, I Can't Break Away. Now, it should be noted that there are no guitars in this song. Did you pick that up? I did kind of notice that, yeah. Yeah. It's an odd choice to start this film. 
yeah, it's just a ton of uh, of drums and percussion. And it has just those incredibly slick 80s production values. And they originally, Big Pig wasn't big on the drum machine, but when they finally came around to it, they used it so plentifully and wonderfully. And you really hear it here. It's like a factory floor. It's just breaking everywhere. Yeah, it's it's really wild. And I'm watching the music video right now, and that's equally just extremely 80s and extremely oh, yeah. stylized. I kind of love this. Mm-hmm. It's just like the band is like standing or sitting on top of like a glass floor and the camera's looking up at him as water's being doused on top of him. It's very yeah. strange looking. They're just Steel Town Girls on a Saturday night. That's pretty much it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this song plays over the opening credits as we kind of see glimpses of the future and this giant sort of like polygon-shaped thing coming down out of the sky. It's very Star Trek, to be yes. honest. It's, that, again, that real 80s version of the future. And we'll see later, um, you know, they all wear sort of the same uniform, which I'm, I'm all for mini golf scores being low and water slides. I don't want to have to wear the same outfit as everybody else. Really hoping that that uh, part doesn't happen. But um, I feel like, see- Libby, I feel like in our future, you would be the Rufus and you, you get to wear your own trench coat and have your own style. My own weird trench coat over my weird suit. Okay, well, thank you. That's, yeah, I- I'm actually quite touched by that. Um, it should be noted that the three most important people in the world are Fee Waybill of The Tubes, mm-hmm. Martha Davis of The Motels, and Clarence fucking Clements, the big man who I don't need to tell you is from the E Street Band. I tried to find out like how they, they landed on these three people. Cause it seems a little too specific to just be like whoever we could get, but I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they were just big fans of the E street band. I don't know. Yeah. I think they had connections mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. to them, but it's funny. Cause I actually just got into the tubes. Really? Um, yeah. A friend of mine sent me um, the completion backwards principle. They're fucking wild. And Fee Whalen is just like, He's crazy. I love it. It's so he's so punk. <laughs> yeah, the tubes is a band I just never I, I I've aware of. I've heard some of their songs, but it's just I've, one of those '80s bands that I never really got around to. Give them another another listen, and it's funny because none of these artists appear actually on the soundtrack. Yeah, right. That's amazing. And the tubes <laughs> would be perfect on this soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, take take your pick. Um, I would personally personally go for something like I uh, don't want to wait anymore. So or Mr. Hate. These are you know a lot of good songs that you could have put on there from the three most important people in the world, and then you're just like nah. And they're just they're sitting in like they're sitting t- very close together in these like floating chairs on a wall. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a strange design choice, but I love it. Yes, they're all like they're all like wearing like the sunglasses and like. Clarence Clemens has that that weird kind of angular flat top. <laughs> it's just like this is the future. This is like the council of rock and roll in the future. I love this. Yes. So, <laughs> although it's hard to believe they would like Wild Stallions, I trust that they get better. But as we see when we first get our introduction to Bill and Ted, they're not that good. No, they are horrendous. They're they're uh, the first thing we see of Bill, Bill and Ted. They're in their garage by practicing their intro video. <laughs> <laughs> taking turns handing the camera back and forth as they're trying to introduce themselves and play the guitar and it's just oof. it's embarrassingly bad they blow out the speakers a la marty mcfly oh you're right and they've got the cuckoo clock telling them they're late for school also wow from back to the future now speaking of back to the future there wasn't going to be a phone booth 
for a time machine. It was going to be a rusty old van. A Chevy van. Chevy van that their friend Rufus, who was going to just be a, like an older friend in the original script, was going to lend them that also traveled mm. through time. And they decided it was too close to Back to the Future. If by too close you mean a complete ripoff, yes. Yes. So they decided to go with a phone booth, which you know no other science fiction property has ever used for time travel. As I said, this movie is, it, it's inexplicably like a ripoff of so many other films, and yet comes off as wholly original. Right. It's just enough. It, it puts its own little spin on it just enough so where you kind of you buy the authenticity a little bit. Yeah. Because it's not like, a, you know, the Doctor Who police box. It's like a regular American phone booth with, like, coat hangers on the top as an antenna. It's just a strange design. Yeah. I think it's, like, actually an umbrella skeleton. Oh, yeah. That's true. You're right. On the top. Yeah. Yeah. So they have to get to school, and they're flunking out of history. Ted refers to um, Napoleon as a dead short guy. Supposedly, mm-hmm. uh, he was not actually that short. He was 5'5", five five, which was an inch below the average height of men of that era. Yeah, he's only short compared to today when most people are, most men are like six foot two. Mm-hmm. Compared to me, he's a shrimp. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> he's slightly taller than me. Mm. But you know what he has that I don't have? Cannons. So, That's respect. <laughs> So yeah, Bill and Ted come home from school with a mission. They have to pass this history report. And as they're as Bill, I, I see. I always get them mixed up. Bill and Ted. Bill as Preston Esquire is Alex Winter. So Bill's uh, stepmom, Missy, who is only three years older than him, which is which is so gross, is grody and sick. <laughs> she drives them home from school, and on the radio we hear uh, band, the band Tora Tora with the song "Dancing with a Gypsy," which. You know, there's the slur in there. It's not really a... Not a great start, guys. No. Uh, this is just such a, like, Rush, sticks Kansas kind of knockoff. It is. It's not great. It's, like, watered down, kind of, like, yes. And there was, there was just, there were a lot of bands doing that, like, prog thing. Mm-hmm. And this is at the absolute bottom of the barrel of it. Like, if you asked Weird Al to do a style parody of this, this it would basically be this song. Yeah, although it'd probably be better. It also doesn't seem like something Missy would listen to. No, you're I right. Just picture her as a little more like a De- like Debbie Gibson's Electric Youth. <laughs> it's perfect choice. I mean, maybe maybe she let Bill play- pick the music on the way home. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Because I could see but Bill you- listening to this, but not Missy. You're right. Yeah. We don't even have to play a clip from this, do we? Really? I think we should. Oh my god. Okay. Well, it's really terrible. Please listen. Here's some eighties butt rock for you. It just it just yes. sounds like but bargain basement Queensryche. Yeah, so and there's plenty more where that came from. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so the stakes have been set, the wheels are in motion, and the three most important people in the world send Rufus on his mission. And as he boards the magic flying uh, phone booth, we hear the first of two Shark Island songs. The first one is Father Time. Let's take a listen. Father Time, 
Now that's a pretty good cue. It's it, it works. Yeah, I'm into it. It's a it's a little on the nose, but um, these guys must be a favorite of Keanu Reeves because they appear twice in this film, and they also have a song called "My City" in Point Break. Oh, okay. Now this is exactly what I imagine Ted listening to on his walk on his like Walkman walking <laughs> yeah. to school. It's pretty standard hard rock licks, mm-hmm. and you will not convince me that. The band is not actually made up of street sharks. Because, like, as I'm listening to this, I'm just picturing street sharks playing instruments. Yeah, I and mean, that's it's, it makes sense. Shark Island is honestly one of the worst band names I've ever heard. Um, Shark Island is basically limousine, right? Shark Island is limousine. Now, um, yeah, it's just like some guys met in high school, started a band, blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, the walls of their studio were lined with Empty's Big Mouth bottles, which was the official shark beer, and the inspiration behind the band's original logo. Huh. So they also, um, they had a single called Hey, which was a live single, recorded in the Ice House in Pasadena, which is the shark's hometown. I'm sure there's a big sign uh, saying entering shark town. <laughs> the flip side was a cover of uh, Bang a Gong, Get It On, and the artwork featured uh the phrase live sharks across the top um with three usda stamps saying guaranteed live and packed in its own juice the middle stamp said usda shark meat choice a later single had uh a cover of santa claus is coming to town of the lyrics substituted or recorded over judas priest heading out on the highway well now i have to go look that up yeah. That's in my wheelhouse. <laughs> Everything so. you just said is like the the worst. Like if you tried to parody the career of a band, of an 80s hair metal band, that's it to the T, to the letter. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of, it's almost Spinal Tap-esque. It very much is. And I know like even uh, what I know about the band, you know, after they broke up, you know, they all kind of went separate ways and started working with other hair metal bands. Or, or people from hair metal bands, because like in the mid early '90s, hair metal was over, and they all had to like go and find new work. I'm looking at their Wikipedia page, and Richard Black from the band uh, went on to join to join a short-lived supergroup called Contraband with members of Rat, Vixen, L.A. Guns. Oh my God! And... They're gonna play at Joe Biden's inauguration. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, probably. I mean, it's better than Damn Yankees. That's all I can say. <laughs> this is like everything that's terrible about hair metal in the 80s and it's all on this album yes father time transitions into dangerous and while they're outside of the circle k um I, did you notice the video rentals to go sign i missed that no it's just in the background and it reminded me that like every like convenience store would have like a rack of 20 videos oh yeah it just it kind of just reminded me of that quite sweetly. That short window of time when like anybody could rent videos from basically anywhere. Yeah, that's probably where we rented Bill and Ted. Yeah, probably. Did you have one of those uh, in your old hometown? The one I remember is at Price Chopper. They had like a video rack, and then later they had a small like two or three racks of videos, and then a separate desk to check them out, like in a corner. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Our town had 
it was like a pool cleaning supply store, <laughs> but it also rented videos. <laughs> and my family would go there because it was the closest one to the house. And we would always go in there and never buy any pool stuff, but rent tons and tons of videos. That's amazing. But just, yeah, I remember renting so many like NES games. And honestly, I probably did rent Bill and Ted from that place at some point. Yeah. And I know the uh, the video store in my hometown, like in the last gasping days of uh, video and then DVD rentals, also sold internet. Which was cool because they had like a test computer that you could try out the interwebs on. And I would just like sit there goofing around on the internet when no one was in the video store. Yeah. That sounds like fun. Yeah. What else are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was only like four websites, but. That's true. Just like (laughs) kick around IMDB for a while. Mm -hmm. I remember my hometown, like we had the one video store that was like on the other side of town and then the weird pool place. But then also Kmart just had a little nook cordoned off with curtains. And inside were, and as I'm saying this, I'm like, okay, so their eyes are obviously porn behind that curtain. But no, it was just regular videos. (laughs) Dangerous is where Rufus appears to them. Yes. So maybe Shark Island is Rufus's favorite band. I don't know. They could be. He could be. Shark Island summoned Rufus. (laughs) (laughs) You played Dangerous and I came a (laughs) calling. But uh, yeah, Bill and Ted are sitting outside the Circle K. They're trying to study for this report. And uh, as as uh, one of the employees of the Circle K walks by, Ted just says, excuse me, when did the Mongols rule China? <laughs> She's like, I don't know. I just work here. <laughs> <laughs> but then Rufus sends them on their on their adventure. But not before they meet themselves. Yes. Us is, from the, the future. Us is from the future. Dude. Are you sure we should be doing this? Ted, you and I have witnessed many things, but nothing as bodacious as what just happened. And then, of course, it comes one of the great moments in all of cinema when Bill and Ted challenge Bill and Ted and say, If you guys are really us, what number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! Whoa. I get it. It's the sex number. <laughs> so Rufus takes them to sort of demonstrate the time machine. Yes. Now, it should be noted that this version of time, unlike Back to the Future, which has sort of a butterfly effect, uh, anything you do in the past directly impacts the future. They're only concerned with the future and how it relates to the present. If they don't do this in the present, then the, that future doesn't happen. Right. Which we'll get to momentarily because that creates some issues. But to demonstrate, he takes them back to 1804 in France. And Napoleon, spotting them, tells his soldiers to turn the cannons on them. But when the cannons fire, they knock him into the time warp behind them as they escape. And now they're stuck with Napoleon in 1989 San Dimas. Yes. So what do they do? They pawn him off on Ted's little brother, Deacon, who (laughs) they pay Deacon to look after Napoleon and show him around town. (laughs) (laughs) Which, honestly, I would watch an entire movie of. Oh, yeah. It's it's one of the great little touches of this film is just watching Napoleon uh, go out for ice cream and then go bowling and then finally uh, go to a water park fittingly named Waterloo. Yes. But we'll get to that later. We'll get there in a bit. 
and Napoleon is he's game for it. Everything that they do, he's like into secretly. Yeah. But he is all he's also just this angry little man who insists on <laughs> being Napoleon. <laughs> and is also confused and does not speak English. No. Not a bit. But he loves San Dimas. And that's the thing that I like about this film is like or the assignment is for them to try and explain how historical figures would view the present. Which is, that is some, like, end-of-year bullshit. Yeah, this is busy work. Yeah. But then the movie actually goes that step and brings the historical figures to the present and shows them around, and half the fun is watching, you know, uh, Billy the Kid and Socrates run through the mall, or Napoleon uh, try to go bowling. It's just, (laughs) it's it's so cute. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's precious. It's the antidote we need right now. Yeah. So the next part, the next like half hour of this film is just Bill and Ted bouncing around time, collecting historical figures, and it's pretty funny. It's nothing remarkable. But it should be noted that unlike, say, Back to the Future, which has sort of that butterfly effect on time travel. Yeah. You can't see yourself. Anything you do in the past will directly affect the future. That's not the case here because they run around kidnapping historical figures. They start with Billy the Kid. Who um, Billy the Kid who who is played in this movie by a guy named Dan Shore, who I am positive they cast him because he looked like John Bon Jovi. He does look like John Bon Jovi. That's too that's too similar to be a coincidence. <laughs> of course, a lot of 80s guys looked like John Bon Jovi. I know, it wasn't that hard back then, but uh, All you had to have was like soft hair. Yeah, it's true. And adorable eyes. Yeah. But they, they, they kidnap Billy the Kid, or rather Mr. the Kid, as they call him. <laughs> and then they go to ancient Greece and pick up Socrates, or Socrates. They Socrates. Yeah. And they impress him by <laughs> quoting Kansas's, all we are is dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. Dust. Wind. Dude, and and he, yeah, and he's so impressed by that he he relates to it. He's like, yes, exactly, like sand, like sand in the hourglass. So are the days of our lives. <laughs> That's the opening words of the, the the soap opera, "Days of Our Lives," <laughs> as quoted by by uh, ancient Greek philosopher Socrates. This movie is so I, clever. <laughs> I know it's adorable. <laughs> so Billy the Kid and Socrates and Bill and Ted uh, go to historical fifteenth century England where they meet some historical babes. It's a history report, Joe, not a babe report. Yeah, well, they were going to they were getting ready to marry some ma- some major ugly dudes and they had to get them out of there. <laughs> um, we take a little time again as we're referencing other movies to play an extended game of Star Wars in their armor. <laughs> yes. It goes on for several minutes. Mhm. J- just as a reminder of even in 1989 the long arm of Star Wars is still being felt in movies like this. And especially, yeah, sci-fi. Yeah, sci-fi in general. Or just just comedies and movies in general. Yeah, and it's funny because for a while, it would go back underground to the point where, you know, when it's referenced in Clerks, it's sort of like, remember what Star Wars was? And it's weird that to think there was a time where it wasn't Immediately on the minds of everybody. Yeah, it's just, I, I kind of want to go back to those days. Yeah, it'd be if you're great. asking me, but uh, it's not the world we live in, is it? That being said, Mark Hamill's a national treasure, so. Mark Hamill, John Boyega, most of them. Yeah, yeah. 
John Boyega, especially. That dude rules. They're awesome. Legitimate, actual heroes. Anyway, so they escape uh, 15th century England without the babes, but we'll we'll meet them later. Alas. Alack and alas. And they wind up in the future in front of the three most important people in the world as the song In Time by Robbie Robb plays. Yes, let's go to a clip. Now, I've got a soft spot for this song because my friend Jason put it on a mixtape for me. (laughs) And when they're talking to the babes, Bill suggests that Ted quote some song lyrics to them. And as we see with Robbie Robb's In Time, as put on a mix CD, uh, which was titled The $6,000 Telescope That Wasn't Really Yours to Give Because It Was Mine, Not Yours, which is a quote from the film Down With Love, uh, (laughs) that shit works. The song lyrics fucking work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this song is so gooey. It's so, like, adult contemporary. And yeah. Adult contemporary is so hard. You, you kind of believe that this is, like, what the song, the music they play in a, a futuristic utopia. Just, like, yeah. perfectly safe, halfway inspirational kind of adult contemporary soft rock. Yeah, it's, uh, it's track eight on, now that's what I call prom. <laughs> Here's the thing. Robbie Rob has no Wikipedia entry. <laughs> oh no! Shark but, Island has a giant Wikipedia entry. What Shark the hell Island happened? Shark Island has like all of Wikipedia. There's an entire <laughs> Wikipedia Britannica about Shark Island. Nothing about Robbie Rob. Apparently, he was in the bands Tribe After Tribe and Three Fish. Is that like the second sequel to Fish? I don't know. I, I that's that's okay. All right. Robbie Rob, come on our podcast and explain yourself. Who are you? What do you want? <laughs> Who are you? And what is your relation to Robbie Robertson? Tell us. We want to know. <laughs> yeah. I have to say, while this film does focus on a more or less exclusively white version of history, it is good to see that the future has a black leader in Clarence Clemens. Yeah. Wow. Listen, if, you were, if you're not going to follow the boss, you might as well follow the big man, you know? Yeah, exactly. I'd follow the big man first. Oh, yeah. Why not? Honestly. So, yes, they're sort of reminded of what awaits them. And mm-hmm. I suppose this is where they realize, like, what the stakes are. But they're too fucking dim. Yeah. Like, I don't think they realize what that place is until late, late in the film when Rufus explains it to them. <laughs> yes. Which is a shame because it's a, a really lovely scene. Like the people come out of the woodwork to see like their, you know, long, you know, their ancient forebears who built their whole society. And Bill and Ted are just like, what? Yeah. Meanwhile, Robbie Rob is playing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and it's like you said, quasi inspirational. Yeah. It's, it sounds like music I could like pick myself up to. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Or like you could run in slow motion with the Olympic torch. Yes. It's, yeah, it's Olympic torch uh, music. It's great. I love it. <laughs> this is a good one. I like this. It's one of the highlights of the album. Even though, like, I kind of, it's a little bit, like, it's a little cringe for me, because I'm just like, oh, God, this song is so cheesy, but... Oh, yeah. Um, as we'll see a little later, I'm a big sucker for cheese. Um, 
After this beautiful scene, we get to see a great scene of Napoleon out with Deacon and his two girlfriends uh, ordering a Ziggy Piggy, which is a ginormous sundae. And he eats the whole thing and gets a button. He gets a button. They put the button right next to his like war medals. (laughs) And it just makes me happy. Mm -hmm. They also, now they have Billy the Kid, Socrates, and Napoleon back home. Anyone else? Well, after they leave the future, they also go to Austria 1901 to pick up Sigmund Freud, <laughs> uh, Germany 1810 to pick up uh, Beef Oven, and then uh, France for, in 1429 to pick up uh, Miss Joan of Arc. Yes, and now I know how Joan of Arc felt. <laughs> During this scene, when it shows Joan of Arc, my husband, who is always funny, uh, said, while you are time traveling, I, was, I studied the blade. <laughs> But that scene, that little clip of, of them picking up Joan of Arc is so weird because, like, she's praying at a church and then the time machine comes down and, they, like, Bill and or Ted, I forget who, like, reaches his hand out down to her to bring her along. And it's, like, a very strange moment. Does she think they're God? Probably. Uh, it should be <laughs> noted that Joan of Arc is played by Jane Wideland of the Go-Go's. Yes. Uh, I'm 900% sure this is where I developed my crush for Jane Wideland. She's so. gorgeous and beautiful. And her album, Fur is phenomenal. Wow. Um, during this montage, we get the song Two Heads Are Better Than One oh, by the Jesus band Power Christ. Tool. It should be noted, for starters, that this song was co-written with Dweezil Zappa. Yes. And Which should tell you something about uh, the song. Yes. It was written by Matthew and Gunnar Nelson, who are the mm-hmm. grandsons of Ozzy and Harriet Nelson. Yeah. That Ozzy and Harriet. And the, and the sons of Ricky Nelson. Yes, which makes that lineage the only three generations to each have a number one single across wow. three generations. Yep. Huh. So it was not for this song. It was not. Uh, should we play a clip of uh, this song? Yes, indeed. That's a paid close attention to the lyrics of this song and the content kind of baffles me go on this is a song about how the singer and his brother went out with the same girl had a huge fight about it and then made her choose which one which brother she wanted afterwards in the song they make a pact that they will never go after a girl again unless she agrees to fuck them both at the same time you know what? I'm done. I'm out. I'm out. I'm, I'm leaving this. This is too gross. I gotta go. Not that they wouldn't let a woman split them apart, which you would think is a song, you know, like bros before hoes and that cra- all that crap. But that from now on, they're only going to tag team ladies as they go out into the world. And the metaphor is two heads are better than one. <laughs> Again, Ozzy and Harriet. <laughs> Thanks, Bill and Ted. I hate it. <laughs> this also, again, like you talk about that butt rock sound. Mm-hmm. Like that nauseating, it's, I suppose it's a take on a blues riff, but it really just sounds like hideous cars and bright lights. And they all sound mm-hmm. the same. And like, if you think back to the Tommy Boy soundtrack and Paul Westerberg's Silver Naked Ladies, oh, like yeah. that's a riff on it and it's almost like a parody of it. 
but yeah, this is I, yeah. just what it is. This is like the sound of every fucking bar band. Mm-hmm. Like to comp- to go back to Van Halen, like this sounds like a Sammy Hagar song without Van Halen. Oh, God, <laughs> it's like I can't drive fifty five kind of thing. Yeah, really. Oh, gross. Jesus Christ. Dweezil Zappa, again, don't you remember who your father was? <laughs> he had an album called Weasels Ripped My Flesh. <laughs> this is the shit you're churning out? Ridiculous. His dad was still alive, too, so I'm sure he had an opinion about it. Oh, I bet he did. <laughs> this is the song that plays during the montage of them collecting historical figures. Yes. And after Joan of Arc, we get uh, Genghis Khan. Who they get with a Twinkie. And he's played by Al Leong who is uh, um, an extremely prolific uh, act- character actor and stuntman. Uh, through the 80s and early 90s, he was basically everywhere. If you needed a henchman for your movie, you hired Al Leong. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's been in everything from uh, uh, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, Black Rain. He was in, I think, actually Lethal Weapon 4 as well. Uh, Last Action Hero, Kung Fu, The Legend Continues. He's just all over at the, the landscape of action movies in the 80s and 90s. And it's great to see him kind of get a chance to sort of break out here as uh, Bob Genghis Khan. And he's a, a incredible, like, stuntman. And you see they oh, show yeah. him he's off, fantastic. like, during the uh, actual presentation at the end. He shows off his, you know, skills of flipping around, and, you know, swinging yeah. sabers. It's pretty cool. It's really cool, yeah. And the scene of them in the mall, which we'll get to in a bit, is just him going on a rampage it really should have just been him when they cut away it's disappointing frankly yeah, i just want to, i just want to see him go crazy it's fun so and then actually um we cut to waterloo oh sorry the oh. last uh, historical figure they catch up with is abraham lincoln oh yes we we can't forget uh, honest abe we cannot so. and then we go to waterloo yes and uh, having been abandoned at bowling, Napoleon <laughs> finds the Waterloo water park, of course. And he's a little skeptical at first, as most of us are, but then immediately gets like swept up in it and is going on all the rides. He's like telling all the kids about it. He's going crazy. And <laughs> that is set to uh, the boys and girls are doing it by Vital Signs. We got to talk about Vital Signs for a second. We got to talk about Vital Signs, but just for a moment, let's just give you a taste of the boys and girls are doing it. go to the Bill and Ted Wikipedia page and you look at the soundtrack and you click through on Vital Signs, it will take you to a Pakistani pop band, which would be amazing, except that it's not the Vital Signs that do the boys and girls are doing it featured in the film Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. No. Vital Signs uh, were a very in-demand live act in the late 80s. And this song was a single. It was huge. Uh, and it was the, the video for this song was the first and only unsigned band to ever have a video on NBC's uh, Friday Night Videos. Huh. But they never actually got signed until 2002 when A&M gathered, they, got, they reformed, 
gathered up all their old demos and put out an album. 2002. 2002, like a full decade after this entire genre of music crashed and burned. Yep. Their website, and we'll post a link, is so beautifully GeoCities. I found it. I'm looking at it right now. It's gorgeous. Oh, man. It's it's like you got in your phone booth time machine and went back to 1996. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> oh, so, vital signs. Yeah. And I mean, this has, again, it's that very like surf and rollerblades Cali vibe. Mm-hmm. It's, Another song that kind of sounds like Sammy Hagar. Yeah. It's it it does have a really good hook. Honest, I'm going to be honest and say, yeah, I, I like this song a lot, and yeah. I kind of feel bad about it. <laughs> it just it sounds like so, it sounds like that radio rock, yeah, of the era. Like you're not exactly going to remember it, but you'll hum mm-hmm. that hook. And like, I promise you, after this podcast, this will be the one song that you remember. Most likely, yes. Yeah. Like it just—it's a song that just sounds like it was built for a montage in a movie like this. Yeah, it's wild. It's fun. It's delightful. It's—it's it's the movie in a nutshell, really. Yeah. So, um, but while Napoleon is having fun, the time machine is actually broken, and they have crash landed in prehistoric times. Which is funny because my time machine and Chrono Trigger broke, and I crash landed in prehistoric times and had to fight reptiles. That is a horrible thing, and I feel bad for you. Yeah, I mean, it was awesome because we picked up uh, Ala, and she rules. She's like the best character. But <laughs> I've just I've been playing a lot of Chrono Trigger in quarantine. That's fair. Yeah. What else? I really, I mean, we all need advice in quarantine in, in these trying times. Yeah. Well, the worst part is I'm losing. I've lost two of the final battles. Like I've beat this game a thousand times. How am I you should know this, this back and backwards and forwards. I know, I lady. can't believe it. I'm so embarrassed. Oh, my God. Ugh. So, uh, so they've crash-landed, and here's where the... Apparently, the original cut of the film was two and a half hours long. Oh, my God. And they trimmed a lot of it. There were apparently some more musical numbers, and there was a running gag about pudding, which probably comes into play hmm. here, because Ted has a backpack full of pudding which i don't remember pudding coming in metal canisters See, I, yeah i was about to mention like that's another little time capsule thing because like i've always seen them in those those clear plastic little cups yeah so like was that a thing or is this like world war ii ration pudding it looked like it didn't it yeah i guess it's the same kind of can that you would find like little vienna sausages in or something Ugh. yeah <laughs> yikes and so they all eat the pudding and then they all choose some gum and they manage to repair the time machine. Now, this is as close as it gets to, like, that moment of darkness where you're like, oh, shit, they're not going to make it back in time. Right. Because even even late in, later in the film, you know, the conflict isn't really a conflict. It's just kind of a wacky hijinks kind of setup. Yeah. So this is Bill and Ted sort of. I think there's something interesting about going back a million years BC to San Dimas in caveman days. <laughs> like San Dimas is a place that Bill and Ted are apparently just fated to always have been from. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I like the, the circular kind of logic of that. Well, again, it's like Hill Valley. Yeah, exactly. So it, that's, that's it, it again, it takes a lot of cues from back to the future. It, it really does. E- either, 
whether they knew it or not. Yeah. You know, I mean, Back to the Future was so huge. Any time travel comedy after that is going to, it's going to look to Back to the Future for inspiration. And it's just going to pale in comparison. Like, yes. It doesn't matter. Agreed. So, uh, but alas, they get back to 1989. And here's where we start to see a little that ticking clock come into play. They do visit themselves in the Circle K parking lot. Um, and we hear some of the other speeches of these presentations, including one person who says, our leaders are at peace. And I just uh, looked at uh, Ian and sighed. Oh, God. And then the one girl who compares from Marie Antoinette to modern times, and she's like, where once she might have said, let them eat cake, now she might say, let them eat fast food. And boy, we we certainly do know a lot about that, don't we? Mm. Our leaders love to shove fast food in our faces, don't they? Yes. I say bring back the guillotine. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. We also get possibly the greatest presentation ever. Everything is different, but the same. Things are more moderner than before. Bigger and yet smaller. It's computers. San Diego's high school football room! That was my away message on AIM for a while. <laughs> oh. It just tells you everything you need to know about me. <laughs> One time, about, I think it's about 10 years ago, my dad and I took a trip out to California, partly for a business trip for him, but partly for me to just goof off. And one of the things I did was I looked up a bunch of movie locations and said, hey, on our days off, let's go see if we can look these places up. This is extremely you, by the way. I'm well aware of that. And one of the places I tried to look up was uh, the high school from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, San Dimas High School. And that's when I found out that San Dimas High School, or the one in the film, is actually in Arizona. Oh. And so uh, we're in San Dimas, and we're driving around. I'm trying to look this place. I'm trying to find this place. I'm looking it up. And instead, we park in this parking lot to look for directions, and we discover a church. In the, you know, we're in the parking lot of a church, and we look up at it, and we go, that looks familiar. It was the church from the end of The Graduate. Ooh. And, like, we weren't even looking for it. We just happened to cross it on, our, on my quest for the school from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Well, if you've been to the school from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, please send us a picture. Yes, or absolutely. Or you know where it is. Any of our listeners in Arizona, Jim Snell, I'm looking at you. Mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. if he actually listens, but. Who knows? He knows who Hopefully. he is. <laughs> I would hope he knows who he is. Yeah. So, uh, well, so now Bill, and, Bill uh, and Ted have two hours left. So even though future Ted told past Ted to wind his watch, he didn't. And that's another like 1980s thing. Like you have to wind a watch. Yeah. Really? That's a. Blows That's my mind. ancient technology. That's <laughs> like Napoleon technology. Yeah, really. <laughs> but they take everyone to the mall for reasons that I'm not quite sure. I guess they want to show them the best of San Dimas. Yeah. Is that? And, 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 and Bill, Bill even said, like, you know, here you go. Here's the mall. Take a look around. See what you think. So he's trying. He's trying to get them to like answer the question. Yes. Of their of their presentation. Yes, of course. That they go to the mall, which is the most soulless place in the universe. It's a nice looking mall, though. It's the fancy mall. Did your town have the fancy mall? Oh God, no, no. Ours were ours were run down and terrible even back then. Okay, I mean, we had to drive to Albany, but Rotterdam was the eh, mall. Crossgates was the fancy mall. 
And now Colony Center is the fancy mall. I mean, the the Wilkesboro Mall where I grew up is now uh, corporate offices for Lowe's Hardware. Hmm. And the Four Seasons Mall in Greensboro where I live now is kind of a dump. Yeah. Well, Crossgates and, and is a real been. dump. But Yeah. I, I think that's just the fate of malls is that they're dumps now. Yeah. Uh, I would like to see a, a remake of Bill and Ted address, you know, what a mall has become mm-hmm. in the past 30 years. Yeah. Where but do it, the kids hang out now? But it's interesting because a lot of malls now have gyms and lifestyle centers and spas. And we see that here, too, because that wasn't like yeah. the mall I grew up in didn't have a gym. But Joan of Arc goes to the gym and like takes over the aerobics class. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, Genghis Khan, of course, uh, takes over the sporting goods store, and uh, Beethoven. Beethoven takes over the the music store. Yes, and this is all set to extremes. Play with me. Let's go to a clip. Now, this is not, as I found out, the original version of the Thompson Twins song from Cool World. No, it's not. But it still rules so hard. It's kind of amazing. And I found out this is ex- this is the debut single for Extreme. Yes. Imagine you're a, a rock band and you're, having, you're coming out with your first single. And your first single that announces who your band is to the world is a mixture of Mozart and Van Halen and just loudness to the extreme. Yeah, it also incorporates uh, shave and a haircut. And it's just children's games. Just yeah, it's just like a list of children's games. Like over this glamorous thrash. I love ecfractic songs like this. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fontanelles and Hobgoblins do a lot of that. Um, love Me Nots uses a lot of like children's rhymes. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because the only thing I really know of extreme is the hypersyrupy more than words. So yeah. like th- this is actually what they sound like. Blew my fucking mind. <laughs> this is where they started out. Yes. Um, so, oh man! And, and it, ex, oh. extreme. Uh, we also met extreme in the Super Mario Brothers soundtrack, did we not? That's right. The chase scene in the in that giant uh, tunnel. You're right. That's extreme. Oh, bogus. <laughs> and once again, to tie it back into Van Halen, Gary Sharon sang for Van Halen yep. in the '90s. In so. 1996, I I had a note about that. So we can't seem to get away from the the pull of Van Halen in this film, even in 1989 when Van Halen was really kind of over at that point. Yeah. And they, it's weird that they couldn't get any Van Halen. I'm kind of surprised they couldn't, but um, alas. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess this was a small enough production that they, it, it makes sense that they couldn't like if, if this were a giant Steven Spielberg movie that for some reason needed Eddie Van Halen, I'm sure he would have said yes. Yes. Um, but it's but, weird, just when you think about how iconic this movie is, that it really was a very small production budget. Yeah. I mean, it was just um, $6.5 million. Yeah, as evidenced by the fact that they couldn't get any real bands, except for Extreme. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Extreme, and then a bunch of fake made-up bands like Shark Island and <laughs> Tora Tora. And Robbie Rob, <laughs> who we don't even know is real. He's not on Wikipedia. And Vital Signs, who isn't the real Vital Signs. 
because I'm, I'm convinced now that the vital signs that Wikipedia links is the real vital signs and the vital signs on the album is a fake vital sign. I think that's fair. That's fair. So now, and again, Ugh, one of our kind of moments of tension is they've got to round everybody up because now they've all been taken to jail for just destroying the mall. Wreaking havoc, yes. Which is what you do when you hear an extreme song. Oh, yeah. I, I want to break stuff. <laughs> I, I want to play music a lot. I want to I hit on uh, girls at the food court. No, yeah. no I don't. And exercise <laughs> really hard. Yeah, why not? <laughs> we, we should talk about the scene where Billy the Kid and Socrates and Sigmund Freud try to hit on like two teenagers at the mall. Yes. Billy the Kid I get, but I don't know why Socrates and Freud are there doing because this. Because they're his best friends. I guess. <laughs> <sighs> and then Sigmund Freud walks up with a corn dog, which is, you know, sometimes a corn dog's just a corn dog. Sometimes Not it's a big in this old case, dick. and they call him a geek, and then everybody <laughs>, laughs at him, including Socrates. Who also calls him a geek. Poor Siggy. Coming back from rounding up Napoleon from the water park, they discover that everybody has been arrested and they're at the police station with Ted's dad. And they have to break them out using a lot of uh, circular uh, future time travel logic that really only works in this movie and nowhere else. After the report, we'll time travel back to two days ago, steal your dad's keys and leave them here. Where? I don't know. How about behind that sign? That way, when we get here now, they'll be waiting for us. See? Whoa, yeah! So after the report, we can't forget to do this, otherwise it won't happen. This is the only time travel movie that I know that does that, where characters just say the things they're going to do, and then they happen because time travel? Yes, and because of low budgets, apparently. Well, it's, it's honestly a pretty clever little workaround, because, like, sure, I believe it. In the future, after, all, after the events of the movie, they'll use the time machine to go back and do these things to fix it for themselves. Yes. So, sure, whatever. But that brings to mind the question... That what incident was it that they needed to send Rufus back? Or was Rufus always destined to go back? Because it wasn't like something changed. So, for instance, you think of the alternate 1985 timeline. He loses the almanac. Right. So did something change where they weren't going to form wild stallions? Ted was going to get sent off to military school in Alaska and the planets would never align. It doesn't ever give us that. So the census Rufus would have always had to come back. So this time travel is built into the future. But then how can it be? <laughs> because if they wouldn't know, they wouldn't know the future that they didn't have. Right. So how could they have possibly? Yeah. See, now I'm, I'm just, my brain is starting to unravel. <laughs> and that's like, that's the problem of every time travel movie is like, you're going to have that little paradox somewhere. And here it's, if we say we're going to do this thing now, it'll happen in the future kind of thing. Like, well, if, yeah, if that's true, then why does anything in the movie happen? Yes. They knew they were going to have to go back and get these historical figures because obviously, let's say on the Napoleon timeline, they know Napoleon's going to get captured. Because it it directly affects his timeline. It doesn't right. seem to affect his timeline. So where does that but also, leave us? But also it's a sign that they're actually learning something because when they're trying to figure out where Napoleon is, they immediately go, Waterloo. Yes, they did so, figure it out. 
over the course of this film, Bill and Ted are actually learning things and they're becoming, you know, smarter people, quote unquote, smarter. <laughs> but you could actually see kind of the change in their characters, like they're understanding what's going on they're, It's kind of clicking in their heads that, what the stakes are and why they need to do this. And it all kind of culminates in their big final report at the end of the film. Yes. Where they're the last presentation of the day. Uh, their teacher thinks that they're just gone, um, immediately gives them the F, and then the power goes out and the lights go down and boom. And now they mentioned that they've got, you know, the best minds in history, but then Billy the Kid walks out. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really? One of the best uh, minds in history, Billy the Kid. You, you, have to, you have to work with what you're given. I guess. In an early draft, they were going to get Hitler. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no. That's, no, thank you. Although there's a great Eugene Merman joke where he talks about dares. He's like, yeah, if I'm going to give you a dare, it's going to be one that could kill you. Like, eat a bag of fire or build a time machine and send it to Hitler. <laughs> so what song is playing here? The song that kicks off the presentation is Walk Away by Bricklin. I'm going to insist on playing this one. Oh, of course. what i learned about bricklin Mm -hmm. the only listing i could find about the band was from the king of prussia historical society oh boy just where they're from uh their page is between the henderson family burial plot and well-known marble quarry now supports modern plant which is still more than robbie rob got the King of Prussia Historical Society has a page dedicated to Bricklin, which was apparently some brothers and their friends. They got an idea to start a band at a local ice cream store called the Purple Cow. Mm. Almost all of them play piano. Uh, I'm looking at their their all music biography here, and the last two sentences just daggers right in the heart. <laughs> Listen to this. Adopting a commercial approach, their music was comparable in style to Toto, Loverboy, It Bites, and Kansas. Although technically excellent and superbly produced, their two albums lacked individuality and distinction. Oh, ouch. Generic horseshit. Who wrote that review? It's just the artist's biography. It's not attributed to anybody. Okay. It'd be interesting to see if my buddy Hollywood Steve Huey wrote that. (laughs) That sounds like him. So... I love this song. And I think Toto, I wouldn't say Toto or Kansas, because I think these guys have more of a pub rock sound. Sort of like if Marshall Crenshaw paired up with the Thompson Twins. It's like pub rock, but with like that new wave veneer over top of it, which is what happens when every dude in your band plays keyboards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of like like Huey Lewis in the News with a little bit of a harder edge. Yeah, but it's got, again, like that hyper-earnest sound to it. Mm-hmm. But there's a little more of like a rock underlay. So it's not quite Robbie Rob. It's That's not, true, it's, yeah. not a, it's not montage music. It's not montage music, no. But Even though in this movie it is. So, <laughs> kind of. But it doesn't sound like, again, like that custom built for 
know. Yeah, it's it's not a song that like a studio commissioned for a movie. Yeah. But I this was actually my favorite song on the soundtrack. I really, really, really dig this one. Yeah, this is uh, of the three that I really like. This is the third one. Yeah, definitely. I just can't get it. Also, we will link the page. Uh, the, the King of Prussia Historical Society, <laughs> who's about to get a flood of traffic from a bunch of weirdos that they don't know anything about. <laughs> Lincoln back to a podcast about Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And it mentions that like right at the end, like they were featured in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. And you just think again, like the King of Prussia Historical Society, which probably has an exhibit of quilts and famous like the mayors yeah and like has old phone books and then this was this was it but then like every band on this out the soundtrack who has a wikipedia page you click on it and somewhere the the mention of this song if this album is just oh and also this band was featured on bill and ted's excellent adventure like there's nothing about it yeah besides oh yeah they were here Mm -hmm. this is a band that existed at one point in time but their hometowns apparently weren't proud of them Yeah, that hurts. Only king of (laughs) Prussia. All 19,000 people who live in there are proud of their their local boys. Where is king of Prussia, by the way? It is in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. I was worried for a second because I thought you were going to say Montgomery County, North Carolina. (laughs) Because that's not far from here. (laughs) That would be awesome. (laughs) So Bill and Ted, their presentation goes well. Did you notice everyone's eating pudding through like half of it? Yes, I saw that, and I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> Me neither. You mentioned there was like a running subplot about pudding at some point. Yes, release the two and a half hour director's cut, you cowards. Release the Harris cut, HBO Max. Unfortunately, that's actually never going to happen because the fate of the studio DG, they went bankrupt, and they believe that footage is actually lost. Ugh. Yeah. That hurts. It does. I would I would love to see what a two and a half hour version of this movie would would feel like and look like because I mean it's 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 less than ninety minutes it's a very quick movie it is I was surprised because um I took some uh, medication ah. before I watched this and I was still awake at the end of it so it hadn't kicked in yet no that's how short <laughs> this film is however it should be noted that uh, Alex Winter actually found some stills from an a choreographed song number that would have opened the film and apparently has shared them. I think I've seen those. Yeah. Yeah, So we should find those. Uh, Kenny Ortega actually did some of the uh, choreography. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Same guy that did uh, Dirty Dancing, uh, Pretty in Pink, St. Almost Fire. The director of High School Musical. Yeah. Yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day (laughs) Off. Well, I remember um, when when they first announced Bill and Ted three last year, uh, the co-writer Ed Solomon tweeted out all kinds of like Bill and Ted production stuff, including like pages of the script that he and Chris Matheson wrote by hand. Nice. They they wrote this this they wrote this script longhand in four days. That's amazing. Um. So Bill and Ted's presentation goes well. Uh, they get let Genghis Khan do a a weapons demonstration. They do a, a sparring session between Bill and Joan of Arc. Sigmund Freud uh, psychoanalyzes Ted and Ted's dad. <laughs> and then finally, the final speaker is Mr. Abraham Lincoln, who has maybe one of the best little speeches in all of film history. These two great gentlemen are dedicated to a proposition which was true in my time. 
just as it's true today. Be excellent to each other. And party on, dudes! It's so short, but it's exactly as long as it needs to be. And it's exactly what we all need to hear right now. Just be excellent to each other. Yeah, and party on, dudes. (laughs) Although right now our parties are rallies for our black brothers and sisters and family out there. You know what? Rally on, dudes. Yeah, exactly. Get out there. And then everybody stands up and cheers. You do. It's (laughs) impossible to watch this movie and be mad at it. I shed a tear when Abraham Lincoln (laughs) gave that speech. It's just... It's so heartwarming and genuine. It's goofy, as silly as it is. And like they picked the perfect actor who just like has that kind of cartoon Abraham Lincoln face. Yeah. It works. Yeah. And (laughs) that shows up a couple of times. He's in the portrait studio and the guy's like, okay, give me back the hat, the stupid Abe Lincoln beard. Yeah. So he's like, no, this is mine. Um, And that's, you know, again, it's, it's hard to find a film that sort of makes everybody happy, but this one really does. The I mean, you you can complain about sort of the, again, sort of Eurocentric uh, yeah. narrative of history. But unfortunately, that's, you know, that was what was taught as history in, you know, 1989. There is one scene where they use a uh, homophobic epithet. I would love it for that to be not in this movie. Yeah, it made me very angry. But it uh, it kind of amazes me now that that's the only sour note in the entire film. Yeah. Everything um, else is pretty spot on, like pretty perfectly inoffensive. Yeah. They could have more women, but again. It's that 19- too. Yeah. That too. It's 1989 and they get Joan of Arc, which is pretty badass. Then at the end, they also bring back the princesses. Mm-hmm. And they're part of the band. That's very progressive of them in 1989. It actually is. So <laughs> um, it's kind of too bad they couldn't put Joan of Arc in there. Oh, that would be but- perfect. <laughs> But she had to go back to being Joan of Arc and getting burned at the stake. Good Lord. But uh, I do like that they actually still suck by the end of the film. <laughs> yeah, they're not any better. And that Rufus and, has to assure us, like, they do get better. But then, as we learn in the sequel, The Intense Bogus Journey, they are not better at all. No. It's weird to think that one day that music will align the planets because it's not good. What I'm kind of surprised about on this is that there isn't, like, a Wild Stallions. Because... We, yeah. we know Keanu Reeves plays bass. Mm-hmm. I believe Alex Winter, you know, at least could, I believe he plays a little music. Um, so I think they bonded over, you know, bass guitars and being dude bros. Well, let's, okay, here's how I, I kind of feel about it. You can go one of two ways with that concept in, the, in a film like this. So it, you can either just not have that music and you don't have to worry about trying to write the perfect song. Or you can hire somebody and hope, pray, and just hope and pray that they actually write a great song that will endure and be amazing for all of human history. Like, um, two good examples of this. That Thing You Do. I know we've talked about this before. But that song, that whole movie hinges on that song being like a perfect earworm. And it really, really is. It is. And so, like, you know, God bless him for finding Adam Schlesinger, getting him to write that song and making it perfect. And then you go and look at, and I watched this the other night and kind of hated myself, uh, the Tenacious D movie, The Pick of Destiny. Oh, boy. I do love that song, though. 
Yeah, but uh, where, where Tenacious D has a, a rock off with the devil, and we're supposed to believe that the song they played against the devil is the best song in the world, and it's just not. Well, and I know they, the, for, part they of the forgot joke, the, the best song. Oh, I know that, but in the movie, like it's just not. And again, like that's part of the joke. Song. That part of the joke is that it sucks and it's terrible. But like, I don't know something about that. You, you, you can do it one of two ways, I guess. You can write the perfect song or make it a goof and write a song that's just not great. Well, and I'm wondering if it had to do with the budget. You know, this is a Maybe. really cut rate soundtrack. This is a Maybe. third tier kind of soundtrack, and so. I just, it would have been nice to have a song attributed to Wild Stallions. Yeah, at least one. Yeah. So, because I feel like the whole film hinges on that and that never pays off. Even if they just had Extreme, like, write a song as Wild Stallions, you know? Or exactly. Something. Yeah. I mean, considering that, you know, the Nelsons with Dweezil Zappa isn't a real band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Power Tool is not a real band. That's just how they build it, you know, so that the Nelson's name wouldn't be on it. Right. But also like Shark Island's already on this album twice. Are you telling me they didn't have a third song ready to go? Yeah. Shark Island, honestly, is what I imagine Wild Stallions sound like. Yeah, it probably. <laughs> probably so. <laughs> so how do we rate this? What do we think? So we have to talk about the soundtrack as like a product. Yes. And honestly, it's a better snapshot of like a, a moment in music time than it is as like a soundtrack album. Agreed. The movie way outshines the soundtrack. Yeah. Cause this is like, you know, uh, 80s hair metal was about to die a tragic, not a tragic. What am I talking about? <laughs> 80s hair metal was about to die a horrible death at the hands of grunge music. And if you listen to this soundtrack, you can kind of understand why, because most of it's kind of unimpressive and just not that interesting. Agreed. There are one or two, you know, bright spots, one or two fun songs on here. But uh, for the most part, meh. no, it's, it's it's third rate, as we said. Um, yeah. The movie, however, still great. It's a good, you know, good rainy day movie. Put it on. Things are tough. Just kick back. Watch Bill and Ted be excellent to each other and keep fighting the fight. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, this it's a movie that doesn't demand too much of your attention. It demands almost none of it, frankly. Really, yeah. So it's it's a very unassuming movie, and I kind of love it for that. It's Agreed. so easy. Such it goes down so easy. Agreed. Well, that was certainly an excellent adventure. Uh, but Libby, what are we doing next week? Next week, it's all about what a feeling as we go back to 1983 for Flashdance. Oh my God, Libby, you're a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be a good time i love this soundtrack i've had this is one of those soundtracks that i've had on every format i have it on vinyl i've had it on cassette I had it on cd wow. and now i have it digitally i love the flash dance soundtrack yeah i know some of the songs but i've actually never seen the film oh so you're be in a, for a good one. treat there's a lot of i don't think there's like nudity nudity but there's a lot of exotic dancing like 80s nudity yeah, there's it's it's a very sexy film. I'm ready. <laughs> My body is ready for flesh. My body is ready for this. <laughs> so Yikes. this just to let you know how 80s this is. Um, Giorgio Moroder produced the soundtrack. Mm. It's going to be harder to get much more 80s than this. I am ready for that. Oh, yeah. So oh, boy. we're just Steeltown girls on a Saturday night. 
Oh, boy. So, uh, Libby, where can our listeners find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Libby Cudmore. You can find me on Instagram at record underscore Saturday. Or you can hear me over on the Shattered Shield podcast, which seems to be on hiatus and probably for good reason. Joe, where can they find you? Mm. Yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Cordial Wombat, or you can listen to me yell about Christmas movies on the Christmas Creeps podcast at Christmas Creeps on Twitter. Uh, We are currently in the middle of doing uh, the Christmas Shoes trilogy because we hate ourselves. (laughs) Oh, God. Coming up on our next episode is Christmas Shoes Part 3. What are we doing to ourselves? (laughs) How many of them are there? Well, the uh, DVD that I was I was forced at gunpoint to purchase for myself has the three Christmas shoes films, and because they needed to fill the space for a fourth, just some fourth other thing that we might also be watching anyway. Wait, I don't know if it actually is part of the Christmas shoes series or not. The Christmas Christmas shoes extended universe. Yes, the, is, the CSEU is Rob Lowe in all of them. Rob Lowe is at least in the first two. That is literally the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. So if you want to hear me yell about that, go to uh, christmascreeps.com. I do. And uh, if you want to come yell at us about uh, movies on the internet, you can find us at OST Party on Twitter or email us at ostpartypod at gmail.com. Go to iTunes or wherever you get podcasts and leave us a good star rating and a review because, uh, you know, we like to know how we're doing. So go tell us how we're doing. Libby, any uh, any parting thoughts uh, before, before we go? Be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes. Yeah.